Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on another bright day here in the capital city as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. My name is Scott Challoner and I'm delighted to be joined on today's programme by Denise Terzi. Denise is the Managing Director of Moorwood Accounting, a firm that specialises in payroll and employment practices. Denise, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us today. Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's a real pleasure, Denise. Now, the uh, the purpose of this discussion is to establish first and foremost your take on leadership. So if we look at that word leader and explore that for a moment to begin, I'm interested to understand what that word actually means to you and how it resonates overall. I think a leader sets by example and has to be flexible, adaptable and inclusive. So if we think about your leadership style in the context of the business, you very much sort of stick by that mantra, would you say? Yeah, especially under the current circumstances. I think flexibility has been mm. really important. <laughs> but I do I don't expect anyone else to do in my in my work life or even in my private life, I don't expect someone to do something that I myself don't they're not able to do. Um so yeah, I lead by example. If I want mm. people to try harder, I try harder myself. If I want people to achieve targets, I ensure I achieve targets. I think uh, there are some yeah. incredibly important points to take away from that, absolutely. That humility that you show as a leader, sort of get on an equal footing and show that you're willing to get your hands dirty and sort of muck in, that makes it far easier to be able to take people with you. And those leaders in businesses that have really shown that approach and shown that they're looking after the interests of their uh, staff members, they're going to be getting uh-huh. the best out of their staff in the context of the here and now as well, aren't they, when they've needed people to go above and beyond to just keep things yeah. ticking over, whether they've had to adapt to remote working or whether they've had to continue working on sites under new safety procedures. Yes. And also being payroll, uh, the furlough, they were a brilliant idea by the government, did turn mm. uh, my brown hair white because <laughs> um, my clients were with employees, obviously very distressed, upset, panic-stricken when it all first came into effect. Um, but I ha- but here we've been really busy because obviously – We've been doing all the furlough calculations. So, yeah, it's um, it's been, and the only way I can get anywhere is by proving we can do it mm. <laughs> and manage the extra work and deal with the, the um, restrictions in the workplace that we've had to deal with. Mm. Yeah. So it's been a very busy time having to adapt to the uh, the challenges of uh, COVID, hasn't it, for yourselves, whereas for other firms, they may have seen demand and dropping off. Um, do you think that that's going to pick up even more still as the furlough scheme starts to lapse um, toward the end of the year and things start to revert to some form of normality in that sense? Well, I'm hoping because, um, in my instance anyway, uh, I have done the furlough uh, calculations and claims as... Um, an extra and not charged in a, in a sense to my clients that loyalty will mean that my clients will stay with me beyond the, this furlough stage. Mm. Um, I I did, I mean, unfortunately, because as uh, I think we previously mentioned, I work, so I work with corporations, so 50% of my clients are corporations, 50% are also 
individuals who are disabled in their own home, and they um, are obviously higher, more vulnerable to the COVID-19 situation. And unfortunately, yes, there have been some losses in that side. But um, all my clients, I would say on the whole, are positive about mm. where they're going over the next 12 months. The, obviously, as I said, the, the first shock, the first panic and maybe anxiety has eased. And uh, they're now, most of them on the whole, think they're going to come out of this and come out of it maybe not like before, but at least they're going to survive. It takes a very cool head as a leader, doesn't it? Not to get sucked in by that initial panic. There's such a temptation to do that sort of freeze under the uh, the pressure and that can cause more harm than good, of course. And I think, to be honest, um, business as a whole has largely dealt with uh, that sort of quite well. Um, it's a testament to their adaptability and flexibility, as you've mentioned, uh, Denise, to keep things ticking over during this uh, this period. And there will be a newfound yeah. resilience as well for those businesses that do make it through. So there will be some positives to take from that. That experience of crisis management is also going to benefit directors and employees um, alike um, as well in terms of resilience. Um, but also, I mean, it's made leaders very self-aware of their limitations as well because it's really brought people management under the microscope. People, of course, generally react to different things, uh, don't they, Denise, let alone a crisis. So when it comes to managing people and keeping them motivated, some may need just a little bit more of an arm around them, a little bit more reassurance than others. And that's oh, a challenge that yeah. directors have had to take on as well, isn't it? Yes. Most definitely. Um, you've got a lot more fear out there, I think. Uh, and I don't mean fear of losing their income necessarily, though there is obviously that as well. But I just think fear of being out and about, fear of interaction. Um, and all you can do is be reassuring, allow them to take the time they need. Um, while setting some sort of boundaries, I think. And keeping the communication channels open as well, whether that's being yes. done on yes. a social distance, face-to-face basis or via technological means such as Zoom, Microsoft Teams, etc., which has proven really useful during this time just to keep that leadership going while at oh, a distance. Yes. yes. I don't think you can ever replace that one-to-one or that mm. being there, but it has definitely helped um, keep alliances together hasn't it certainly has for sure and um it's really made us think during this time that we may have taken that human contact side of things for granted because as human beings we are ultimately social creatures but nonetheless Mm -hmm. we've seen a great deal of debate about how working practices could well change to go toward the remote side of things more in the future as we adjust to the new normal that everybody's talking about. Um, do you think, that Denise, that there is a future in the workplace for the um, office environment, not just in your business, but also in the wider world as well? I think, I think it'd be nice to imagine that we can have the best of both worlds in the future. So I do still think that people miss uh, going to work being able to say hello to their colleagues, chat about whatever they did for the weekend, as well as talk about whatever may be happening in the workplace. So, uh, which in Zoom, the problem with the, the only problem with the uh, Zoom calls and so on is that sometimes you get a dominant dominant person on them. Mm. <laughs> it's very hard for other people maybe sometimes to get their messages across. 
uh, when you're having a big collaboration. So I do think that it'd be nice if we went, say, to two days in the office, three days working from home. I think that would be the best ideal situation for a lot of people. Um, and also people, this period that we've just gone through is unusual because children have been at home as well as the adults. Um, trying to work around children, husbands, dogs. Some people have found extremely challenging, shall we say, mm. maybe having to do all their work at five in the morning before the children wake up, which is going forward when they're back, hopefully back in the school environment and you're working from home, it will be easier to keep office hours. I think that's um, exactly right. Um, I can see exactly where you're coming from from that point of view, uh, Denise. Um, and... Um, one thing that we did want to touch on as well, just because there's been a great deal of debate about it, is the uh, the clarity um, and transparency of guidelines to continue to operate safely and also for businesses to reopen safely in future. Um, do you think that you've been comfortable knowing exactly what's been expected of you throughout this pandemic to continue to work in a safe manner and you continue to be so as things begin to revert to normal? I think the guidelines are there, though I think sometimes they're difficult to stick to. Um, yeah, uh, obviously we change things. You, the obvious things is hand sanitizer, face masks, mm-hmm. etc., available for staff. But um, it's still the face of if you're working in an office and you wish to pass a piece of paper. I know theoretically it should be done electronically, but it even you get posts, you, whatever. You're not going to leave it on a desk for 48 hours to not be contagious anymore. Um, yeah, I think I think I think all you can do is do your utmost. And anyone who has um, any symptoms just goes and self isolates or doesn't go into the workplace. Mm. Yeah, exactly. I think uh, that's pretty much uh, more you can do in the uh, the circumstances for sure. And before we do um, wrap things up on the programme, Denise, one thing I wanted to address as well is the new normal and the future that we can look forward to under that. Um, in the context of um, yourself and the business, what do you envision for the uh, the next 12 months for more accounting? And what do you really hope to achieve as we adjust to the new normal and hopefully begin to emerge from the pandemic and focus on our long-term future? I... I hope we can carry on producing such a good service as we have done in the past. I hope, I do think we're going to have a lot more electronic payrolls, or the paper payrolls will just disappear. Um, I, to be honest, for me, I actually don't see a lot of changes in my particular business from how it was prior to after, because as I said, um, the actual furlough legislation required requires a lot of people to use payroll bureaus. In fact, actually, since it came into effect, I've had more inquiries from people. So for me, I would say that the future looks, I wouldn't say exciting, because it's a bit early maybe to say that, but I think I'm hopeful for the future. I am planning... Um, carrying on with my plans I started prior to the COVID situation um, to split and expand the business. Um, for the country as a whole, and maybe for that fear factor that felt by some people, 
I think it depends what happens over the winter. If we have a um, a second peak. Mm, of course, there is that huge variable, not only in the social recovery, but the economic recovery as well. And of course, we won't know until yeah. the uh, the time comes around. And, you know, considering how informative it's been actually discussing these issues, I think it would be great to actually catch up and have you back on the programme at some point in the next year with us, Denise, just to discuss exactly what has changed in the uh, the time between and catch up on how Morewood Accounting as a business is getting on as well. Because it is one thing speculating on what might happen, and it's a different thing entirely looking back and reflecting on what's happened yeah i mean you might come back to me in uh, three months time i find a question but <laughs> and i didn't know what i thought about and you may come back to three months time and find that i'm doing well but it's it, it's it is a difficult time it, it's very hard to project i think more than three months at a time what's gonna happen yeah i don't know what's gonna happen in 12 months Mm. Um, I'd be brutally honest. I am hoping, though, that, as I said, and I feel in my gut that I can carry on with the plans I had prior to COVID, yeah. Mm. Let's certainly hope so, and let's hope that there will be some good news to perhaps share in the uh, the course of the next few months. Um, I have to say, Denise, it's been a real pleasure having you join us on the uh, the programme today and a really thought-provoking experience as well. And until we do speak again, which I'm sure we will in future, do take care and do stay safe with all still going on because, as you rightfully said, there are so many variables and we're certainly not out of the woods with this uh, COVID-19 situation as of yet, that's for sure. No, and I wish, I hope you stay safe as well. Look after yourself. <laughs> yeah. And for those listeners well, tuning in. Thank you very in, much for having me. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a real pleasure, Denise. And for those listeners tuning in as well, do continue to stay home where you possibly can. Do take care of yourselves and do stay safe because it really, really does make a difference in saving lives. Um, and that was Denise Terzi I was speaking to there, the Managing Director of Morewood Accounting. And coming up next on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with Liz Field, the Chief Executive of the Personal Investment Management and Financial Advice Association, the trade body for firms who provide such services for individuals and families. I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan relished the opportunity to speak with Liz and that is coming up next. I'm Jonathan White and we're joined today by Liz Field, CEO of PIMFA, Personal Investment Management and Financial Advice Association. What a great mouthful. Liz, thank you very much for coming on today. No, thank you for inviting me. No, not a problem. A complete pleasure. And I think uh, it would be a great place to start if we may is maybe a little bit of background uh, for the listeners. Obviously, PIMFA does work in, uh, uh, across the board these days, but, of course, it was only founded uh, uh, three years ago when, of course, um, MAPFA and uh, the WMA were merged. That's right, yes. Um, I think it really was a, a reflection of, of where the industry was going in terms of uh, the provision of financial advice and helping individuals with their um, personal financial futures that we felt that it was necessary for the two bodies to merge together. Um, but both, had, well, certainly the Wealth Management Association and its predecessors have been around for nine, well, nearly 30 years yes. now, actually. But you're quite right. Um, as PIMFA, it's, it's been nearly three years now. And the uh, probably a very wise move because uh, the the uh, uh, PIMFA's been going from strength to strength uh, since. Uh, what would you say at the moment? Uh, is are are the priorities uh, for yourselves there? 
Um, I think there are a number of priorities. I mean, we represent a diverse group of um, of businesses, which all have one thing in common, which is that they face the clients, they they face the consumer. Um, so whether that is face to face or whether that is um, online. Uh, it's all about helping individuals to plan and save and invest um, for themselves and for their families. Uh, but we're going through uh, a number of, of key challenges. I mean, um, looking at a, 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 a macro level, if you like, um, markets are a little turbulent. Um, it's it's very challenging um, to... Um, Kind of navigate the the uh, investment management world. So uh, even more reason why you need a financial advisor and uh, an investment management firm to help you, um, because it is quite a complex arena, and that's not helped by the lack of financial education uh, more generally. So um, if you have that as a backdrop, uh, and then politically you have what's going on um, with post Brexit uh, and where the rules are going to come from in future, all of that is still to be negotiated. Um, so it, it's a whole melting pot of issues that uh, that our firms are trying to face. Oh, without a doubt. I think uh, it, maybe Elizabeth, there's quite a few understatements there in terms of the challenges that are yes. occurring <laughs> at the moment. But there's quite a lot to pick up uh, uh, on the on those points because uh, I, I think it's, 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 a, it's a unique time almost, Liz, isn't it, where there are a different set of challenges that advisors and individuals are uh, being confronted with from a lot of different angles. Um, and perhaps if we can start, let's start at the beginning, in fact, you bring up the issue of financial education. Yeah. Now, that's something I think uh, you can talk to anybody in the business and they'd agree with you on that front, Liz. We don't do it properly in this country. Where no. do you think, Liz, it should start from and how do we fix it? Okay, so I think, I mean, the first thing to say is that there's a lot of fantastic effort that we see across the whole of the financial services sector, uh, our sector um, amongst that, where they they try and go into schools um, and provide financial education. You go onto any website um, of some of our members and they've got some great educational material. Um, but there isn't a national framework that 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 wraps itself around the whole of the financial education efforts within our industry. And without that, um, I think they're, they're, the the businesses are facing a lot of um, barriers when it comes to actually getting into schools. Um, I mean, financial education is part of the, um, per, I think it's personal health and social education um, a piece of the curriculum, but there isn't an exam um, that's at the end of it. So when it comes to schools and, and how they're being judged, it's on metrics such as um, exams and without an exam for financial education, um, I think uh, it's, go it's, just, it's just going to keep coming up against the same barriers. Mm. Um, and financial education is not the same as maths. So uh, what we'd also quite like to see is is that we have more um, kind of money type questions within the maths 
curriculum because that will also then bring it to life uh, for young people, for uh, youngsters and you know school kids. It will bring it to life because it's about things that they have to deal with or you know that they they deal with on a day-to-day basis, which is money. So the more that we have that is populated in the curriculum that is about money, um, the better, I think, because that then we'll start to promote a culture of, of savings and investments, which we so badly need in our in in in, in our um, in our country. Without a doubt, Liz, because and again, you've hit the nail on the head. Because there's only so much that can be done without the involvement of the curriculum in schools. Yeah, uh, and you know, you can, as you've pointed out very well, uh, it, it, companies can try all they all they might, but it, it's difficult if it's not a, a joint effort. Uh, yeah. And I think as, um, uh, for example, uh, with, with the new government we have, there have already been positive noises at the very least. Whether they become actions is another <laughs> thing entirely regarding what you could consider a, for, a, a, a far more applied mathematics in, in a lot of uh, uh, the system, but ty- time will tell. And that's something I think we could probably dedicate in the next hour to. Liz, yes, I think you're right. <laughs> we probably shouldn't. Um now, looking at a couple of other points to pick up that you've already raised here, Liz, uh, and it goes back to the word you've already said, which is uncertainty. Uh, it, it seemed as if the markets, investors, people, we've been in a state of limbo for the last three and a half years. Uh, we're talking, of course, three months after, two months after uh, a general election that resulted in a a large majority for the Conservative Party, and therefore at least we have now uh, uh, left the European Union without without dragging you down the political rabbit hole <laughs> here, at least. Is there a hope now that because of that clarity, we may start to see a far more s- s- far more certainty in the market? And what are your hopes for the next twelve months? Um, I think. I think that's, that we've still got a little way to go because um, whilst, you know, 31st of January came and went, um, you know, we're now we're now in a negotiation period. We're now in a transition period. Um, and for for UK um, savers and, uh, and investors, uh, in terms of where the rules are made, there's still, there's still not some clarity about that. Um, you know, we're, we're still, uh, well, we don't know yet whether we're still tied, um, or will be tied to the, um, European rulemaking, um, down the line. That's still to be negotiated. I mean, we've always said that actually for, for savers and investors, we need stability in the markets and we need access to funds. Um, however, it, you know, the, the majority of our of our firms look after UK savers, um, and therefore, a one of the positives we see is the ability to have a a rule book that makes sense for UK savers and investors and UK firms. Um, so there's an uh, we think that there's an opportunity there with definitely without um, watering down regulation. So we're definitely not talking about less regulation. What we're talking about is smarter regulation, which makes sense for firms and makes sense for clients. Um, and as we've got a very unique industry in terms of savings and investments um, um, in Europe, in Europe, England or U- the UK rather and and Ireland are unique amongst our European counterparties. So when you have a European rule book 
or a rule book that is set in Europe that doesn't bear any relation to the model of intermediation that we have here that has caused us problems in the past. And we're hoping that we will be able to affect that in the future with a local regulator and a local rule and a local rulemaker. But we will see. That is still all part of the of the melting pot. So whilst I'd like to be posit- positive and, and optimistic about the market, <laughs> um, we've still got this period um, of, uh, of negotiation and uh, until we see where we go to with that. Uh, and of course, you've got financial services and fisheries amongst yeah, the same two, piece, you know. <laughs> famous fellows, aren't they? Indeed. Um, absolutely. Absolutely. So we've still got to wait and see, I think. Absolutely. Um, and it will be an uh, interesting year, if nothing else. Um, yeah. uh, now, you, you, you mentioned there, at least uh, the role of, uh, of course, regulators. I know uh, in the last month or so, obviously, uh, PIMFA has. Uh, given its fair amount of critique to um, the FCA, um, are they at the moment doing their job correctly? Um, I think part, I, th- I don't envy the regulator one iota. Um, uh, I think if you look at the the number of people that they have in the supervisory team and the number of firms that they have to regulate, um, it, it, it is not an enviable job um, by any stretch of the imagination. Yes, we have been critical, not least of all because we are expecting um, better supervision to prevent firms from failing and certainly to prevent firms from failing in the spectacular way that they have uh, in the last few years, which has impacted on the size of the financial services compensation scheme levy. And this levy is paid for by by firms within the industry. And our firms are a majority of small to medium-sized firms, and their bills have gone up exponentially. Our criticism is that, you know, we we don't object to having an FSCS levy um, or, you know, the lifeboat funds to pay, you know, recompense to to consumers. Uh, and, and our view is has always been that the polluter pays. But the polluters have, have long since folded by the time mm. it comes to any payment, which means that good firms are paying for bad firms. So the system, we believe, is broken. Um, and, and I think that is about the regulatory perimeter. Um, you know, what is it that the, that the lifeboat fund should be protecting? The perimeter is too big. So that you know, what is the nature of risk? That all needs to be um, uh, redefined, we believe, and recalibrated, which then enables you to determine, well, if that's what risk is, then how do we protect it and how do we levy for it? Mm-hmm. Um, and that is all linked to better supervision. So that is something we have been critical about. Um, we're in the process of finalizing a paper, uh, which we um which we have positioned in a constructive manner, which is these are some of the things that we believe, FCA, you should be looking at in your supervisory process. And we want to help you to do your job better. Now, I, I know there's no such thing as a, a magic wand, Liz, and perhaps it will be putting you on the spot. 
but if let's imagine, let's let's imagine you did have one just for the just for this afternoon, perhaps, and you were able to change one thing about that uh, system. And perhaps I shouldn't ask this because if your report isn't out yet, you might well not want to reveal something that's in it. Um, but if you could, um, wh- what would be your number one priority? If we if we were to if I were, my number one priority to to solve the system in terms of reform. In terms of reform, what regulatory reform, you mean? Um, I think, oh, goodness me, the one thing. um, It is a bit of a mean question. Uh, It (laughs) is. Gosh, yes. Wow. Um, I I think it's about the regulatory perimeter. Um, I I think let's have a look at the regulatory perimeter, um, which is, you know, gives some certainty to, to clients about what is protected and what is not protected, which also then gives some assurity both to them and also to the advisors who have to advise those clients on what what's the pathway to success for them. And what and and I think if there's some clarity around all of that, then everybody will be will be better off. Great. Now I'm conscious of the time here, Liz. It's already catching up with us. So perhaps if we can take a a little step back and uh, and look at. Um, uh, the operations of PIMFOR again, it's what PIMFOR do, does so well is its ability to build relationships with so many uh, different uh, organisations. Can that really, Liz, be underestimated, the importance of having those working relationships with, with the departments and the organisations that you do have? No, I don't. I, I think it's absolutely fundamental um, to any business, actually. But it's certainly something that that we have in the middle of the stick of rock that is PIMFA. Uh, I mean, we talk about the, you know the values that we have as an organisation. We we are a small organisation, uh, and we can't do our job unless we work in partnership and collaboration with others. So, relationship building. Um, and maintaining and creating a good foundation of relationships is absolutely fundamental to what we do. Without a doubt. And I think that's the key point, Liz, isn't it, that that's so applicable to any realm, whether it's business or or politics or uh, any areas of life. And I think because of the time here, I must start to wrap up. But um, perhaps I can ask, Liz, looking forward, and I know the next 12 months is full of uncertainty, what are uh, the plans PIMFA has for it nonetheless? Um, so I think our, well, our key priority this, this next 12 months is, is, is to be talking um, much more, um, and we, we, we have been lobbying um, a fair bit on this, but because of Brexit, um, our ability to actually kind of get into, um, see the policymakers on both sides, I think, to have that dialogue has been a challenge. Um, but we're finding that that is changing. They, you know, they, they want to hear from us. So I think our priority is around that regulatory perimeter. Um, and what does, what does regulation look like for, uh, for us moving forward? But at the same time, it's not just about the future of regulation, but it's also about the future of supervision because the two of those go hand in hand. Um, so those, those two, um, are kind of what are, are the main, 
the main areas over the course of this next year. Having said that, um, you know, we have a manifesto that's got six that's got six pillars in it um, and regulation and supervision and the future of that is is just um, kind of is just one of those things. There are a whole host of another of other things promoting the sector as a as a force for good and as an integral part of a of an individual's kit bag um, for financial and mental well-being uh, is is another key strand of, of activity. So I think future of regulation, future of supervision. And then promoting the sector as an integral part of uh, of um, everybody's kit bag in building their personal financial futures. Well, Liz, there might never be a, a more important year, uh, or has not been in a while, that will determine the future of all of those things. And perhaps never a year where so many people pay attention to what happens to Britain's fish stocks. Um, but it's been <laughs> it's an absolute pleasure discussing that uh, leadership with you today. Uh, I hope very much we can sit down perhaps later this year uh, when there's a bit more clarity perhaps and talk through a few more things. Thank you. I would love to do that. Thank you very much. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.